Welcome, everybody. I, I, I am uh, trying to feel, fill Alex Jones' shoes, which is incredibly intimidating today. Uh, but uh, I am delighted to have uh, Matthew Heinemann here to talk to us today. He has um, written this uh, fascinating book, The Myth of Digital Democracy. It's quite provocative in some of its points. I hardly encourage uh, people to read it or to take my class next semester and read it then. Uh, and uh, he is coming to us from sunny Arizona at Arizona State University, but has just accepted a position at uh, George Washington GW in the belly of the beast uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, he has formerly been a fellow here at Harvard uh, back in the day when there was a center on uh, digital governance. Um, and I asked him, I'll tell two quick stories. One is um, in 2004, uh, I, uh, 2004, which I think in some ways was the, the height or the ascendant moment of, the, of, of political blogs, um, I remember a, um, an article talking about how um, there was nothing really new about political blogging, that Marcos of Daily Coast was actually just an old school union boss marshalling his acolytes and, and uh, manipulating and brutalizing elected officials and, and running politicians in every way possible to achieve fairly blunt uh, objectives, ideological or policy-wise. And I thought, uh, given my own experiences with Marcos, that was a fairly apt description. <laughs> and um, and uh, I, I, I think that it's very interesting to hear some of Matthew's uh, work and thinking uh, around kind of this, this, you know, kind of utopian ideal of the way the internet, what the internet could do for democracy and some of the truth of what it has done in the recent, in the recent past. I did ask him, however, uh, speaking of kind of brute political force, what his, uh, what his favorite website on the internet was, and he, by way of answering, told this story, which I think is uh, 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 remarkably revealing which is that LBJ, when he was president, leaves the White House one day and is walking to his helicopter and walks the wrong way on the tarmac. And uh, someone says to him, uh, Mr. President, your, your helicopter is this way. And he looks at him and says, son, they're all my helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> By way of saying, what is your favorite website? Well, I suppose they're all my favorite websites. <laughs> so uh, with that, all right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nico, for that uh, introduction. Um, I am just thrilled uh, to be here um, uh, and uh, delighted to be uh, 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 to be in this uh, in this forum. Um, I, I want to say actually that this is particular um, personal significance um, because uh, the very earliest work that I did in this vein was actually done here, actually right upstairs um, in this building. Um, so it's uh, it's terrific to actually uh, to, to close the circle and, and be back here to talk about it. Um, so I've been asked to speak for about uh, 15 minutes, um, and that's not quite enough time to talk about every page of the book. Uh, so I won't try to do that. Uh, I'll emphasize a few themes, a few highlights, and I am re reliably informed that this is a group that likes to argue. Um, so I'll do my best to focus on the parts of the book that I think are the most fun to argue about. Uh, and I want to uh, conclude uh, today by, by talking a little bit about um, what I think are the stakes and the ways in which 
Um, these issues have, I think, uh, only grown in importance uh, since I turned in the full draft of the book uh, a couple years ago. Um, so this, uh, this book, The Myth of Digital Democracy, is really a book about political voice, uh, writ broadly. It's really about who speaks uh, and who gets heard online. And it spends a lot of time uh, dealing with claims that the internet is, quote unquote, uh, democratizing politics. Uh, some of these claims are um, very specific. Many of them are overly broad. Um, but, uh, but these are claims that we still hear an awful lot uh, in discussion, public discussions about the internet. We hear them from policymakers. We hear them from journalists. Uh, we hear them from scholars, uh, though often, uh, fortunately, more judiciously. Uh, we hear them uh, in, in, from judges. Um, the claims that the internet is eliminating gatekeepers, that it is giving voice to voiceless, that it is empowering ordinary citizens. Um, uh, perhaps my favorite uh, recent quote in this vein is, is uh, Brian Williams talking about after spending his entire life uh, gathering credentials to study his line of work, he's now up against some guy named Vinny in an efficiency apartment in the Bronx, <laughs> right? Uh, who hasn't left the efficiency apartment in a couple of years. Um, to a large degree, this was the book that I intended to write, a book that was very much in this vein. That's not really where the evidence led. Um, so I, I want to start out by, by emphasizing, though, that uh, I, I don't want to I don't want to come across as saying that the democratic promise of the internet is, is all mythical. Uh, a lot of the early research on the internet talked about cyber optimism, cyber pessimism. Um, I think that we've mostly uh, moved beyond that at this point. But in my mind, the strongest case for cyber optimism, or at least the strongest case for internet-fueled influence on politics, really comes from the internet's ability to facilitate new forms of collective action. And we have lots of examples now of types of collective action that are strikingly different from traditional form. Uh, and I talk in the book, uh, to, to a large degree about this, uh, in, in my discussion of the Dean campaign. Um, and I think that we can see pretty clearly now that the internet has succeeded to a large degree in revolutionizing um, the infrastructure of politics. The, lo the logistics of politics of a political campaign looks dramatically different today than it did a decade, a decade and a half ago. Um, and partly, as I argue in the book, uh, this, this has followed much the same trajectory that we see in the business world. Uh, now, there are some successful examples of online businesses, the Amazons and Ebays of the world. But far more important uh, in the aggregate are the hundreds of businesses that have quietly used information technology and the internet to revolutionize their back ends, to revolutionize, revolutionize their supply chains. Um, and I think that it's uh, quite clear now that the logistics um, uh, of running a campaign, of, uh, particularly of resource gathering and of volunteer recruitment, um, are quite, quite different. I don't think there are very, very many uh, folks who would dispute the notion that Barack Obama would not be president of the United States, certainly would not have won uh, the Democratic primary, but for the internet. And I would even make the case that McCain would not have been the Republican nominee in 2008, uh, but for uh, the advantage that the internet gave him and the, its ability to sustain him through the summer of 2007. Uh, but while collective action and, and these new forms of internet-mediated collective action is important, most of what my book talks about um, is what some have called the network public sphere, the online public sphere. Now, this book is certainly not the first to be skeptical of claims that the internet is broadening uh, uh, the uh, public sphere. We've seen an awful lot of work on the digital divide. Um, 
on the fact that um, it's that many people are still not online, uh, many people still do not have broadband, and even more important, I would argue, uh, that many people don't have the skills uh, or the motivation uh, to take advantage of this, particularly with regard to politics. We've also seen a lot of scholarship on the movement of traditional interest groups, um, political parties, news organizations, political institutions online, and all of these themes are important. Uh, but, but what I try to offer in the book um, is, I think, a different critique of internet politics. Uh, and I was fortunate uh, to be able to get, I think, more and better data uh, to look at some of these questions. And in all of this, I would emphasize the distinction between speaking in politics and being heard in politics. Um, in most traditional areas of politics, once initial barriers to participation are overcome, citizens' voices get heard relatively equally. Um, once people vote, their, vo their, their votes count equally. Uh, once people uh, agree to volunteer for a campaign, they have a relatively uh, equitable uh, uh, amount of resources to give. Nobody can volunteer more than 24 hours in a given day. Um, even with uh, political money, political uh, campaign donations, traditionally the most unequal form of participation, there have been uh, uh, imperfect limits governing uh, how much any one person can give. But the inequalities in political voice online are far greater than anything that we are used to in traditional politics. Uh, and I think this jumps out quite clearly uh, for a lot of the data. Um, claims about the online public sphere also depend to a large degree on claims about traffic. Assumptions about the online public sphere are really assumptions about what people are going, what they're seeing, what they're doing online. And to a large degree, um, portrayals of the online public sphere, of the internet in general, have assumed that the internet is going to be what I call in the book a digital Robin Hood. That what it's really doing is robbing from the audience rich and giving to the audience poor. Um, and that is actually, as I argue, not what the data shows. In fact, traffic online is highly concentrated, both over the entire web and within politically relevant categories of content, like news or politically, political blogs. The top 10 sites online, according to Hitwise, get more than a quarter, almost 30% of all traffic on a given day. The top 10 news sites online get a similar level of concentration, roughly 30% of the overall market. And even though we continue to hear an awful lot about power laws, um, about the, the quote unquote long tail, claim that's associated with Chris Anderson and others, um, it's, it's, it's simply not true that the biggest shift going on in media audiences is downward. Now it's true that, uh, uh, that the smallest sites do get a collectively a larger share of the total audience um, than they would in any sort of traditional media. Um, but audiences are shifting upwards as well as downwards. And in fact, the biggest shift in terms of audience is actually, aw is actually away from what I call uh, uh, middle class uh, middle class outlets in the book, sort of the uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of mid-sized news, uh, newspapers, right, where in terms of print circulation, that's where the bulk of the audience is. But if you look at online news, the bulk of the audience is at the very top and at the very bottom, uh, and uh, and this really is a hollowing out of the news audience that I think has um, dramatic implications for the future of media in the 21st century. Um, I also think there are other, uh, a number of other reasons uh, to be skeptical about exactly how broad the online public sphere is. 
The other thing that jumps out, I think, quite clearly in the data is that political content is a tiny portion of overall web traffic. Um, news sites get about 3 to 4% of all web traffic. Um, and non-traditional, non-commercial sources of political information get only um, a couple of tenths of 1% of all web traffic. Um, that's not to say that the web isn't important for politics, but I think the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that politics is not that important to the web. Uh, and to uh, think about this in terms of broader perspective, um, adult content or pornographic content online gets between 50 and 100 times the visits that political content does, um, at least in terms of these traditional, non-traditional, non-commercial. <coughs> and in a few cases, they're the same thing. <laughs> Listen, I, I thought we were, I thought we agreed not to talk about John Edwards. <laughs> uh, so, so we see uh, online consistently concentration. We see that political content is not that uh, big a portion of the overall whole. Um, but I want to uh, discuss briefly a few other, I, I think, and barriers um, that have been overlooked. Um, when we talk about the openness of the inter internet, oftentimes we end up talking about infrastructure. Internet. And I think, that, um, I, I think that one problem with the debate thus far is that it is uh, systematically focused on the most open parts of the Internet's infrastructure. <coughs> Talking about how the TCPIP protocol allows any computer on the Internet to connect to any other computer, how HTML allows any site to link to any other site, and that's all true. Um, but even though the technical specifications of hyperlinks, for example, may allow um, any site to connect to any other site on the Internet, um, in practice, social processes and economic processes have distributed these links in a winners-take-all fashion. Uh, that's part of what I show uh, in the book by doing a very large-scale content analysis of communities of political advocacy, where again and again, whether you're talking about gun control or abortion or the president, um, you see extremely concentrated patterns of links. Um, and this matters. Um, partly it matters directly because the more links there are to a site, the more traffic it's going to get. It also matters because modern search engines privilege um, sites that get lots of links in terms of, of crawling the web and in terms of ranking um, these sites, uh, ultimately in terms of the content that citizens see. Um, the infrastructure of the internet is only as open as its most narrow choke point. And if we only focus on the parts of the infrastructure that are uh, the most open, we're going to have a systematically distorted view of what the, uh, uh, of what the infrastructure of, of the web actually looks like. Um, uh, as I also try to show in the book, um, search engines are not just limited by the link structure of the web, they're also limited by the ways that citizens interact with them. Um, search engine use overwhelmingly is shallow. It's not just that most citizens are not that interested in politics, which is something new or should know. Um, it's that when citizens are interested in politics, um, they use relatively simple queries. Um, search engines may allow um, citizens to find new content relatively easily, but even easier is to return to content uh, and sources that citizens are already familiar with. Um, not only that, even in areas where we don't have incumbent players, even in areas where we don't have traditional media institutions moving uh, into the, on, uh, in the online space, and even in areas where content is relatively cheap for one person to produce, I think what we've seen online is that social hierarchies have very quickly uh, emerged. Now the claim, of course, that the internet is supposed to allow more voices to reach at least a non-trivial audience, maybe not a broadcast audience, but certainly a non-trivial one, 
uh, and that the voices that get heard are supposed to be more representative of the public um, more broadly. Uh, and I think the best test of these propositions uh, is actually uh, political blogs. Um, but blogs turn out not just to be highly concentrated, uh, but the bloggers that do get a substantial readership, and here we're talking about uh, dozens of bloggers, uh, um, what we see when we actually look at who these folks are is that they are disproportionately male, overwhelmingly professional, uh, and particularly impressive is, that the, is, the is the educational pedigree of the folks who are getting in the order of thousands of hits a day. Um, most of them have uh, degrees from Ivy League caliber, caliber institutions. Most of them have graduate degrees. And this is actually, in terms of the educational profile of these folks, this is actually more elite, not less elite, than, for example, um, op-ed columnists at top papers. Um, if what we're hoping for is a kind of Habermasian public sphere that is governed and run by an elite set of public intellectuals, then, to some extent, this is great news. Um, but if what we're really trying to do here is empower uh, the folks who are working the morning shift at Wendy's, I think that we, uh, we have to be clear that we, we're, we're not there yet, uh, and we're not likely to get there. Um, perhaps um, what we see here is, as some have argued, a truly extreme meritocracy. Um, but we should perhaps not be too surprised that the folks who went out in this meritocracy are, you know, um, Ivy League educated folks, uh, not middle school girls blogging about their cats, right? Um, if there were, uh, if I had to rewrite the book from scratch, actually, one of the few things that I would, there aren't too many things that I would, that I would change, but one, one area where I would like to, to, to tweak and perhaps alter my argument a little bit is this issue of political blogs. Not just because things have changed, um, though I think in, in important ways they have, but I think to an even broader degree, to uh, a large sense, that things with blogs haven't changed as much as people expected. If you look at, um, at prominent blogs, most of these prominent bloggers started blogging in 2001, 2002. You, see, you saw an extraordinary still uh, change in the rankings, the emergence of new bloggers in the 2003-2004 election cycle. Smaller degree of change in the 2005-2006 election cycle. But by 2007-2008, the most recent election cycle, I think you saw almost no movement, almost no shift in the rankings of the top bloggers. And the only real exception to this, that's certainly the most important exception to this, um, is Nate Silver, 538.com. Um, but Nate Silver, I think, is a very different uh, model than any of these uh, bloggers who'd emerged before him in earlier times. Nate Silver being an offshoot of Daily Coast, um, starting as a blogger there, uh, earning credibility uh, for his post, earning an audience, and then breaking off to, to form his own separate brand. Um, I want to suggest um, that for blogging uh, and for many other areas of online politics, the frontier is mostly closed. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be any change whatsoever, but the rate of change uh, is dramatically lower than it was a few years ago. Uh, and all of this um, adds up, I think, to uh, a much narrower net. And I think it should force us to be skeptical about many of these theories of what I term in the book, trickle-up politics, the notion that ordinary citizens blogging about things are going to be, maybe they're not going to get that much audience, but they'll be read by other citizens, and if, you know, that the really good ideas are going to filter up um, for the blogs. 
uh, I think that uh, to a large degree, these kinds of notions of the online public sphere rest on some dubious foundations. And particularly, they rest on the, uh, that they run into trouble in the fact um, that the moderately read outlets that these kinds of trickle-up theories depend on are in short supply. And they're in short supply in every level of the web. Um, let me conclude by making one last um, point. <coughs> I'm writing the book that if traditional media stay healthy, if the blogs uh, are, uh, and other online sources of information are largely a supplement to a healthy traditional media, well, it's very easy to make it. Uh, it's very easy to, to be optimistic uh, about the internet's effect on politics. The notion of, of filtering political information through a different set of constraints, concerns, and biases, um, different set of gatekeepers. I think it's. Uh, I, I think ultimately it's pretty easy to have a, an optimistic take on things. But even since uh, the final draft of the book was um, submitted, I think it's become increasingly clear that traditional media are not healthy, um, and. Even if the internet, even if it's not uh, blogs or online news organizations in general that have uh, been responsible for the travails of of of, uh, of newspapers and other tra uh, other traditional media outlets, I think it's increasingly clear um, that uh, journalism um, and newspapers, and particularly local uh, accountability journalism, um, is increasingly in peril. And I think that does raise the stakes for the sort of issue that this book talks about. And I think it uh, increases the importance of trying to address uh, uh, and find solutions for these problems. Uh, and with that, I will uh, conclude and uh, turn it over to Nick. Excellent. Please, uh, you can have a couple bites of your lunch okay. here. All right. Thank uh, you. And I'll, I'll try and buy a little time by offering a couple of, of thoughts. Um, you know, definitely it's a little bit of meet the old boss, new boss, same as the old boss, right? <laughs> the, um, but you know it's very interesting. You're kind of running in a in a parallel track. Clay Shirky was here in the fall, and uh, gave a pretty, <clears throat> I think, brutal and compelling assessment of uh, not so much the end of accountability journalism, but uh, the end of accountability journalism in in that middle tier. He said at state and municipal levels, not so much at hyper local levels or at the national level, where there was a lot of interest and uh, energy uh, and profit, both at the national level in a very explicit corporate way and at the hyper-local level in like citizens being invested in their government for some accountability media, right? And so, you know, your notion that there's this middle uh, um, middle tier that is, that is really suffering and that that's dangerous for democracy really resonates with, with some, of, some of his points. I also think there's kind of a, that does feel like there is a you know we're we're moving past some of the um, you know wide-eyed optimism and getting into a much more substantial evaluation of digital media broadly. You know, I'm in the middle of reading this uh, Jaron Lanier book. You are not a gadget, and he has this whole notion of digital Maoism, right? I mean, here's one of the kind of creators of collaboration technology saying it leads to fascism. <laughs> you know, the five are abbreviated, right? And so uh, it feels like there is a there is a kind of valuable moment here of of trying to carefully assess who who, who are we becoming culturally, who are we becoming politically, what's the impact of all this? 
And and in that in that vein, you know, I uh, I understand your argument that based on the data, the kind of the blog, the top blogs has gotten more rigid rather than rather than more open. Um, but I also would make a couple of observations and see what you, your response is. One is on a number of them, like for example, Daily Coast. He's really architecture <coughs> so that there are constantly new voices coming up, right? And so it actually does feel pretty open in that sense, right? I mean, it, it is still a fairly narrow ideological spectrum that he's choosing from, yeah. right? But, but it is giving lots of interesting people like Nate an opportunity to have fairly dramatic-sized audiences. And my other observation is that, you know, the, the traditional media has moved fairly aggressively into this space over the last five years. I like to think about in, in 2003 when I was, uh, well, you know, in 1999 I was working in Washington, D.C., and I religiously read the hotline every day, right? But the hotline, you needed like, I think it was $10,000 a year to get a subscription, right? And then I moved to New York and got a job at an Internet Startup, and I, I wasn't going to pay $10,000 a year for the hotline. And the only way to get that kind of granular political news was blogs, was Marcos and Jerome with my DD, and these were guys in their basements, in yeah. both cases unemployed, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but they were really covering, you know, this political, like, who's running for lieutenant governor in Montana a year away from the election yeah. in a really granular way. Now, if you fast forward, now, NBC, ABC, CBS, they all have relatively major political blogging desks that cover this stuff by the minute, all day long. That like the, It's not just the blogs, it's the whole media sphere that has really shifted over the last decade. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with uh, pretty much all of that. Um, I think that one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that... Um, you know, in 2003, blogging was a discrete activity that was performed by a discrete group of people, more or less. Um, and that's no longer true. Blogging is basically just the default way of publishing any kind of time-sensitive information on the web. Um, and I think that you've seen, to the extent that you have seen um, changes in blogging, I think it's been uh, overwhelmingly traditional interest groups and even more so traditional media organizations um, investing in blogging um, uh, often as a way, um, uh, often as a way of uh, of trying to deal with the economics of the web, which in many ways are remain somewhat mysterious uh, <laughs> to these organizations, probably more mysterious than they should be. Um, but but take the example of the Atlantic, um, which has put together a very uh, probably the best, certainly the best paid stable of bloggers. Um, so for the Atlantic Monthly, you know, obviously, you know, arguably, um, uh, sort of, uh, uh, the most uh, pedigreed um, uh, uh, magazine of American letters, uh, back to publishing Emerson, um, the Atlantic comes out, of course, you know, on a, you know, it is, comes out on a monthly basis, right? So you need something to keep uh, attention, keep people actually going to the site. Um, and this is often gets talked about in terms of stickiness, right? How much time are people going to spend at your site? How many people are you going to track? What are they, how, how, of, how, how often are they going to come back once they find it? Um, and the most important factor in terms of stickiness is how often content is updated. And you see a really strong logic of concentration <coughs> among blogs um, and, uh, because, um, you know, if 
you know, it's very difficult for one person to update content more than a handful of times a day. Uh, and the people who are really able to do that overwhelmingly um, are people who are doing this more or less as a full-time job, or people with, ex with extremely high levels of social autonomy, um, lawyers or professors or, or folks like that. Um, and so um, with The Atlantic, now, now you can go see these, these bloggers who are doing it full-time. They you know, can post lots of times a day. But, um, not only that, if they, you know, if uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates hasn't published something in the last hour, you can see three or, three or four other people who have. Um, the sites that get the most traffic, by definition, are the sites that are stickiest over time. Um, and so we've really seen um, this. That incentivizes the blogging right, behavior right, and the kind right. of intensity of the news cycle. But, but let, let me make a broader point that I think that is, is, is it relevant to blogs, but I think is, I, I think, critically important for, um, for the web as a whole, and particularly for news sites in general. Um, so one of, the, one of the responses that I've gotten to, um, to, to, to this uh, line of research is, well, okay, um, all right, so you've shown us a picture, you've, we've, you, it's a power law relationship, but we know the web is constantly changing. Um, so yeah, so maybe you know certain these sites may be prominent today, but these are contestable spaces. A different set of blogs are going to be um, uh, are going to be popular tomorrow. Different set of news outlets are going to be popular tomorrow, and so this means that openness on the web is still um, alive. Well, in the past couple of years, I've been able to actually get really fine-grained daily data on exactly what this power law looks like, not just in a snapshot, but every single day for years at a time. And the way to think about this, I think, is to think about um, a stock market, which is something that most of us are familiar with. So if you think about the stock market, right? we have a few really big companies, the GEs, the Microsofts, the Exxons of the world. Um, and they're quite, these blue chip stocks are quite stable on a daily, monthly, yearly basis. We've got these mid-cap stocks that are a tenth the size, that are 10 times as well. Uh, we've got the penny stocks that are, you know, are going to you know, grow or go out of business, right? Incredibly volatile. Um, and that's essentially what we see in pretty much every area of web traffic. Um, and what this means, I think, for news uh, this is critically, and, and why this is so important, is that in order to have a stable audience for news online, you have to be really, really big. These middle sides. So, so it's so so, with, uh, uh, huh. so 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 traditionally in journalism, uh, you know, a small town newspaper can count on a pretty stable audience base, and there's still, to some extent, if you are the largest site in your local or regional niche, um, you are are somewhat more stable than you would expect, given how large you are, or, or how small you are, rather. But so, but. Still, I think the biggest and most difficult thing to deal with for the future of, of journalism is not lower online revenues. We know how to make small news organizations. We may not like it. We may give up a lot in the process, but we know how to make small news organizations work. What I think that we don't know how to do is how do you go into a newsroom and say, all right, all right, folks. So it's January 1. Over the next 12 months, we're looking at, uh, if, we're if we're a typical news organization, we're looking at somewhere between a 40% growth in online revenue and a 50% drop. How do you run a news organization? How do you get people to work for you um, when that really is a scale of change that we're talking about? 
it's a it's a it's a consistency and high. It, I think of it from the other end. I think of it from the bloggers end is the high availability problem. You have ten people visiting your site every day, and then one day you have eight hundred thousand people visit your site, right, and then the right. next day it's ten people again. Yeah, right. Yeah. Do you buy ten thousand servers for that one day? No, it's not sustainable. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, questions. Yeah, um, I think your book is very interesting. Very funny to see how it creates a kind of emotional reaction to some cyber optimists around the world. I have some friends, and they make a very funny comments about that. My first, my first question is: I, I read your book maybe in September last week, mm -hmm. uh, last 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 year. So I maybe um, let me know if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But I think you you didn't consider or you misconsidered the effect of the social network, websites like Facebook, YouTube, in terms of political movement. Because we know one thing is, um, like uh, the search engines, people go to search engines to get some political stuff and to, to search um, about political websites. Or as you said, they go to the most famous political blogs. But another way, maybe a third way to get or to access political content is just receiving some content from your own network or your friend's network or your work network. So how, how can you analyze this? Maybe, of course, we have now Twitter. Twitter is very recent. So how can you analyze the effects of this social network website? The second question is another way to people discuss politics in the internet is not only um, accessing political um, uh, political material or political content in general. They can go to the institutional websites like the government websites. We have this open government initiative. Some many other initiatives made embedded by public institutions. People prefer not talk about uh, politics, but do politics in some way. It's an, another way to to leave politics on the internet. So I'd like to hear your comments about that. So, so let me deal with the second part of your, your question first. I, I do think that um, uh, one way of, of summarizing um, the conclusions of the book, and it's, it's not, not, not the whole picture, but I, but I, I think it's, it's accurately a part of the picture, is to argue that the internet is, is increasing accountability without necessarily increasing representation. And I think that there are a variety of ways in which having content that is not just theoretically public, but actually public, matters for politics. Um, I think that, um, you, you know, I think that, uh, I think we've got a number of different examples, and I'll, I'll just name one. Um, you know, I think that um, given the way that the Republican primary um, played out in 2008. I think um, it's. I think that George Allen would have been, had he been in the race, um, probably the single strongest Republican uh, candidate for president into in the 2008 cycle. But of course, George Allen wasn't in the field because he had been. Uh, he had lost his race for uh, for Senate. for Senate um, because um, he you know because he had a his quote unquote macaca moment right. Uh, you know, using a, an obscure North African racial slur, right, um, to describe a staffer for for, uh, for Jim Webb's campaign who was, who was videotaping him. Um, 
and that that matters, um, uh, and that that and I think that's the area where we do see the clearest uh, and, and most direct effects um, on. Uh, uh, on politics of these various different scandals that the <coughs> web makes much more transparent and it unfold much more quickly because of the web. Um, but I think the broader point about social media um, and viral media um, is, is crucially important and it's an area where I, where I do think um, <coughs> that there's lots more data that we need. Um, but I think that um, to the extent that, they, that we have early reports and early data, I, I think that that, uh, I would roll that into what I, what I said at the start of my remarks with that. I think that really is the strongest case for um, uh, uh, internet-fueled influence on politics or cyber optimism, if, if that's what you want to call it. Um, I think that, uh, but it's important to understand what we're really talking about there. Uh, this, uh, this is really the online uh, equivalent of conversations at church or at over the water cooler, right? This is really sort of, you know, sort of small-scale, um, you know, interpersonal reactions. And we have lots of data going back decades that these kind of, per, you know, small-scale interpersonal re reactions are a lot of what, where people get their information. It's certainly where they're most likely to encounter views that, um, uh, political views that disagree with their own. Uh, and I think that, I, I think when all is said and done, I think that we're going to, I think that the data is going to suggest that this really is uh, highly, uh, highly important. Uh, I'm a Shorenstein fellow here, and I'm working on uh, news coverage of state government. And what I'm finding is there's a big shift to the web. Yeah. And that, uh, especially uh, on the right, that uh, yeah. conservative, very conservative groups are coming in and setting up these uh, news websites in all over the country. Uh, what do you make of that? Um, I think that that's, um, I, 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 I think that's, that's, that's certainly what I've seen. Uh, and I, I, would, I would certainly agree with that assessment. Um, that, that, that what you really see, um, I think, in a lot of state capitals, um, uh, and I, 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 I can claim, I'm familiar with about four or five states on a pretty, uh, pretty close level, so I, I, I don't, I don't want to speak for the entire, I don't want to claim to talk about the entire nation, but in, in every case that I've seen, what you really do see um, is, a, is a shift towards, uh, as, um, as, as formal coverage of state capitals collapses, as there are you know, a third less, um, perhaps a half, uh, only about half as many people, uh, reporters covering state capitals as there were a decade ago, um, you, see, uh, you see the rise of these, uh, of these it's generally only a couple of blogs on the left or right um, on, in each of these states. Um, but that, nonetheless, is well, pretty... These are, these are, are uh, more like the traditional yeah. newspaper-related website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there seems to be an interlocking group of organizations that are putting these things up. And uh, I, I think... And it's... It's very much on the right. There's only a couple of instances, you know, with organizations that you would regard as liberal to moderate. Uh, but there's at least a dozen, uh, and they seem to be on the right. I, I, in my limited experience, I think part of what distinguishes um, the liberal groups from, 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 from the conservative groups in this domain is that the conservative groups um, 
are able to actually build these sites on top of pre-existing um, interest groups and advocacy groups. That they so it's the they have the they have they have the 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 they have the the shoe leather first, right, and then they add the website on top of it. They don't, um, and and the liberal groups, I think, in it's it's t I, I I wouldn't say this is always true, but I, I think it's more often the case. The liberal groups start out with the website and then build downwards. Uh, and I think that uh, I think that these uh, I think these different patterns of organizing I think um, do have different implications, uh, and I think that um, particularly for shaping uh, 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 state house races, I think that the, the I, I think that the uh, I think that, I, I think that these conservative groups are going to be quite effective. Uh, it's taken them a while. It's taken them longer to put together these kinds of organizations, um, but I think that uh, long term I think it's um, quite successful in um, enacting people who are going to act on their preferences. And then Alejandro? Yep. Um, so I think that you make a very compelling case. Like if you look at it from <coughs> audience per website and links to all that constructed, that this is not very new or that's not very different from traditional media. However, I think what you're not looking at as much as what you referred to the water cooler yeah. effect and I think there's two important things going on there that are different from classical water cooler conversations one is that even when they're happening over email you can put your yard sign right next there as soon yeah. as somebody talks about the tea party you can say oh text talk text brown to this number and you will get or, or volunteer for t uh, for brown in Dorchester so that's one thing that's very different and the other thing is that all these small blogs, I would say that's also water cooler conversation because they're read by their friends <coughs> and they read their friends. Um, you can actually uh, read that. So if I'm a politician now, um, and there has to be made some effort to make that really feasible, but I can actually monitor what's going on on a broad scale and figure out what are things that are coming from the fringe that actually catch foot that are not referenced to by the big media, but that independently a lot of small blogs, tweets, whatever, talk about, and you can um, you can get involved. You can comment there. You can tweet them. You can follow them, and you can actually measure. Facebook has this cool tool where you can yeah. follow what things are trending, uh, and so I think that's something that you didn't look at, um, maybe because of time constraints. I don't know, but I think I wonder if there's something that is really changing the way the conversation works because there's a way to listen in on water cooler conversation and interact with those? Um, I, the reason I didn't look at it is because I couldn't get the data that I, <coughs> that I wanted. Um, I think I actually, I've, I've now got a hard drive that is um, that for my next project or, or a couple of my next projects is full of Twitter, uh, Twitter data um, leading up to the leading up to the election. And I'm not sure um, because I really haven't looked closely at what exactly that will picture that will emerge from that. But, but one thing that I will say is that I think that, uh, that, that really is important is I think that um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that the web has shortened the distance between reading about a political event and participating in some way in that political event. Um, I, I think that it, you know, when, when you read about a campaign or a candidate in the New York Times in the print edition, um, you know, well, you know, and say you read a candidate you you know, find inspiring. Well, likely nothing is going to come of that because when you th you know because you're not going to you know you're going to forget about it five minutes later and that's going to be it. 
Um, but if you read some, but if you read about um, uh, the same candidate on Daily Coast, right, where you have, uh, you really do have community pressure, social pressure um, to donate. Um, you know, you, you have consistent coverage over time. You have a link that's provided right there to um, to go to go ahead and, and donate. I think that, that that matters. I mean, the the the, the for a long time the. Uh, you know the, the bottom line in a lot of the political science research on uh, political participation is those people who participate are the people who get asked, and I think that the that we're uh, one of the things that we're seeing is that what does it mean to be asked to participate in politics is changing. Uh, it's very different in online politics than it does, than, than it is in, in traditional politics, um, and I think that um, and I, I think that. Uh, one of the things that you see in terms of the traffic to political websites over time as the 2008 race went on um, is in 2007, um, the traffic to uh, really to right until the primaries get started, the traffic to Obama's site uh, is largely driven by search engines and by political blogs. It's not that much traffic, but the early traffic is dominated by those two forces. Um, and something funny happens once you start to get close to the primaries. The traffic gets much spikier, much spikier. Um, and you also, and it starts to come on the, on the days that really spikes, is coming overwhelmingly from web mail. And so what seems to be happening there is the Obama campaigns um, mass emails to their, to their voter, uh, to, 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 their, to, their, to their contributor list. Um, and when you get that fourth or fifth email from David Plouffe saying, you know, all right, we really need your support, uh, it seems to make a difference. Um, and even if the internet does nothing else but increase the, by some factor, the monetary uh, resources available to candidates, that can have a pretty dramatic impact on our politics. Now, most, of course, of what Obama spent this money on was very traditional broadcast advertising. Um, but that's not the entire picture. An awful lot of what the rest um, went to, well, it went to the, what I believe is the largest polling operation in American history. And not for, not to track the race, or not just to track the race, um, but really to build these targeted voter models. And this sort of gets us into the question of what really <coughs> is internet politics and what's information technology and politics. It's hard to make these, uh, these distinctions at, at some point. Um, but if you look at how Obama won Ohio, for example, um, it's very hard to <coughs> overstate the importance of these statistical models of voting. Uh, and in practice, these statistical models of voting are essentially doing what neighbors and ward captains did in an earlier era. You know, in the you know old school politics, your neighbors and ward captains knew who you were going to vote for. The machine can do it. Yeah, the machine, right? Um, you know, we, this is a, you know this is a new definition of political machine, right? Um, but um, but we know how to motivate turnout. You knock on people's doors, right, and provide personal contact, right, and that and if people and for people who are right on the edge between voting and not voting, that makes a big difference in their likelihood of turning out. We know this from now hundreds of uh, of, of of field experiments. Um, having the resources to do that and being able to push that technology out to every precinct through the web um, is a pretty important shift in politics and how, and, and how American politics runs. 
Uh, and I think that we're, uh, and I think we're still a long ways from understanding exactly what the long-term consequences of that will be. Alejandra, and then zoom in and over here. Hi, I'm Alejandra Matosmino, fellow journalist from Chile. Uh, my question is more general in, um, related to the economy. We live in an economy that favors the concentration of power and the concentration of wealth, and it's a global economy. How does relate or not relate to the internet? <laughs> um, it's a small question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's a, it's a small question, but I think that it's. Um, uh, uh, I think in many ways it's it's the right uh, it's the right question, um, uh, and it's a question that that in in a somewhat different sense that I've been thinking about uh, in terms of my my ongoing project. Um, let me. Um, let me let me make a, a, a somewhat broader point. Uh, a lot of people have looked at the web and said, oh gosh, traffic is so dispersed, or they've just assumed that traffic will be really dispersed. Uh, I would actually make the opposite argument, that what you really see on the web is incredible concentration of traffic. Uh, and to the extent that traffic looks dispersed, it's mostly a proliferation of niches with a couple sites dominating a given niche, rather than lots of, of sites genuinely competing with one. And this is, I would argue, a very, it, it, this looks very much like we, like, um, well, I think it's, uh, I've been thinking about this more recently, essentially is an economic geography problem. And economic geography is really a study of, you know, the location of production and consumption in space. I'm very interested in traffic, which turns out to, I think, really be the production and hosting and consumption of content on the web. Um, if you look at these kinds of, of concentrations in the real world, in terms of economic geography, um, economists take a look at this level of concentration, and they say, well, gosh, there must be increasing returns. There must be really imperfect um, uh, competition. Uh, and I think that that increasing is what we're seeing online, and that we're seeing even more and more uh, with Web 2.0. I think that that's, uh, I think there's a lot that we still need to, to study here, but I think that the economics of concentration on the web are, and the, lo the economic logic of concentration is becoming more and more intense um, with every passing year. And that's part of why I, uh, I, I talk in the book about you know, this, these claims about low barriers to entry and how I don't really believe them. Um, so, According to the Rand Corporation, right? Let me let me, let me, let me make this one last point. You know, the the, the U.S. Um, in inflation-adjusted dollars spent roughly twenty-two billion dollars building the atomic bomb in World War II. Right? By the end of this year, Google will have spent more than that just on research and development and on server facilities to build their search engine. Um, and I think that, and so, so Google, right, is, you know, has half a million computers. Close behind is Facebook. Now, part of the reasons why we see this concentration is sort of a very, a very familiar to us from the economics of world media, right? It's, tough, it's expensive to make this broadcast content. It's cheap to, dis uh, relatively cheap at least, to, dis to distribute it, right? It's expensive to make that first copy of the paper. Um, once you have that first copy, all it costs is paper and ink, right? Um, but a lot, of the, a lot of the forces that are pushing us towards con uh, concentration, I think, are relatively new. Uh, not just network effects, but uh, uh, I mean, obviously Facebook is more valuable to me if all my friends are on it. Um, but I think there are other factors as well that we need to be thinking hard about. Um, so I think that um, uh, to, 
to, to sum up, I would say that um, I think that these are exactly the right questions to be asking, uh, and I think that we, uh, I think that there's a lot more work to be done. We'll go assuming, and then over here. So um, when I read your book, I had the impression that the, the myth of digital democracy that Del mentioned was the, it had to, much to do with the American context, where you have a, relative, a long history of the internet, but um, relatively not so high penetration compared to some East Asian countries in Scandinavia, and um, overall low participation rates and certain level of um, like factual knowledge, which is, you know, and I, I was thinking, do you, would you say, like, do you think it would, but then internet is basically, it started out as an American thing, and, and the, most of the things are predominantly in English, but would you say you would, we're likely to observe like fractals of the same situation in like, you know, in internet for different languages, in different regions, in different co contexts, or, you know, or do you think there's something inherent about, you know, the medium itself that makes it so? Um, I, I think it's true that this, in the book, I just look at the American context, um, and I can't, can't claim to be an expert on, on anything outside of that. Um, but I, I would say, I would, I, I, I would argue, actually, that the effect of the internet is largely context dependent, um, and that to the extent to it, and that the existing media environment that the internet enters um, really makes a big difference in what sort of effects it has, um, because there are lots of, of of countries in the world, actually most countries, where I, if you see identical levels of concentration to what you see online in the U.S., it's going to be a dramatic dispersion of audiences down there. Um, and I think that you can see uh, the one case that I do know something about is, is Britain, where you really, um, interestingly enough, what you really have seen is you've seen the BBC dominate far more than any American outlet does the uh, 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 news in the U.K. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens now that the BBC is slashing the budget for its online news division. Um, but we've already seen um, a lot of these, um, a, a lot of these, uh, the, the Guardian, uh, you know, uh, the Times invest a lot more after really waiting, frankly, way too long, finally investing a significant amount of time, energy, and resources in the web. And thus far, it hasn't dented the BBC's numbers at all. Um, and I. Uh, one of the things that you see online is that traffic is largely a function of habit. People go to the sites today that they went to yesterday, and they went to the sites that the sites they went to yesterday are largely a function of the sites they went to the day before. Um, and so these traffic patterns do tend to be highly consistent over time, um, and that's and and that means to some extent that if we want, I mean, I think increasingly it means that if we are um, trying to understand what online politics means, I think we look at the institutions that we have now. Um, and if we want online politics to be something different, we really need to focus on changing those institutions, not just assuming that something new will come along in the next year. All right, last question. Oh, thanks. Um, you know, I'll, I'll love all these ideas, can't wait to read the yeah. book. Um, I one thing, this kind of combines your, your discussion about how surprisingly, the uh, discussion has become more elite or run by even more elites. And then kind of turning back to this opener, meet the new boss, same as the yeah. old boss. Do you, I'm wondering if it almost makes sense like the beginning with the internet to just kind of like just disaggregate audiences. And so you used to have these newspapers that would kind of have to cover a large sphere and, and just kind of tailor to a large audience. 
And so maybe they would have the op-ed guy who could speak to, yeah. who, who would try to draw somebody who's not interested in politics. But once you disaggregate, yeah, you just get the elites who are interested in this kind of discussion. So I wonder if, if that's maybe just like why that's happening. And I wonder then, but as you said, is, maybe is it trending back? I wonder if like the Daily Post or these like large aggregators or blogs are trying to then take the role more of the newspaper and say, let's broaden our audience and let's try to let's try to speak to not not be so much. Do you hmm. see that trend yeah. happening? Or? Um. I, I think that I think this notion of, of disaggregation is is important, and I think that um, well, well, to take a newspaper for example, um, what is really a newspaper? What really unites uh, the business section with the news? You know, with the front page, with the business section, with the comics, with you know the traditional classified advertising? I mean, in the 1970s, the answer was this was. Really, the, these, the newspaper was what provided you with all of the information that had to be updated on a daily basis. Um, now, of course, the big problem is that, you know, why would anybody take out a classified ad? Um, Craigslist does it for free, does it for, does it for better, you don't have to put it in a, you know, 200 characters. Um, and a lot of the traditional core business of newspapers, of course, have been picked off by other sites. Um, maybe I want to go to ESPN rather than going to my local, uh, you know, and subscribing to the local paper. So I think that this segregation, I think, is, is a is a key part of what's going on there, and that for, um, well, well the, the, there's the famous Converse quote about um, uh, about uh, knowledge about politics, where he says the mean is low but the variance is high, <laughs> right? Um, which, which really is, which is basically the way of saying, you know, lots of people don't know that much, and some people know everything. And really, um, and, and there are, there is, you know, the, uh, how you define a political junkie gets a little bit sticky, and some people disagree about how to do it. But there does seem to be a class of people who are very interested in politics and will consume enormous amounts of political content. Um, and frankly, uh, political blogs provided um, uh, they went into a space that was underserved in the marketplace. Um, and they did something much like Craigslist that was, in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways better. Uh, if I want to, you know, if I'm, if I'm interested in news, I want to know not just what the facts are, but what it means. Or maybe, you know, at least a significant chunk of, of the citizenry falls into that category. Um, and, so, um, and so I think that that's, um, to the extent that you see new sites, really big sites emerging on the web, and I think this is true in, in, in politics as well, it's mostly about finding a new niche or redefining a niche. Um, the sites that get that are already big don't tend to go away. If they do, they fade very slowly. Um, but it's really about um, the, the new sites popping up tend to be about finding a, a niche that's underserved. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. Thank you, Matthew. Right. Thank you.